I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. At its best, I think when it's like you're in a, you're in that deep flow state that everyone craves and loves, like it feels like play because it is, you know, it's like a very like um solo uh like sort of personal feeling of play but play is also work you know like that's why it's so important for for children when they're growing to like have certain mandated hours of play i'm jordan kissner and you're listening to thresholds a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. Quick note, I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic. So we are at the end of my guest hosting Thresholds, which has been an absolute dream for me, because what is better than talking to other humans? Nothing. And in this episode, I get to wrap it all up with Gina Chung, who is a Korean-American writer, a Pushcart Prize recipient, and a 2022 Center for Fiction Susan Kamel Emerging Writer Fellow. She's also the author of an extraordinary debut called Sea Change, which is about failed love and missing family and a giant Pacific octopus. It's really wonderful. And my connection 
to this novel, and Gina is a tender one. She wrote it as one of my thesis advisees in her senior year at the MFA program at the New School, which is to say, I have known this book since its inception, and I basically think of it as my niece— And I think of its author as the best kind of student, the one who teaches you as much as you teach them. It was fall 2019. I was in the first semester of my MFA program at the new school. And I happened to be in Austin in Texas. And this was, again, months before um, everything went haywire and shut down. But I was in Austin, Texas for a dear friend's wedding. And afterwards, we had a couple of days to kind of explore the city and do whatever. And so I went to the, um, there's like this famous bridge, Congress Avenue Bridge in Austin, where um, you go during the summer into like late fall months to see the bats fly out into the sunset. Um, And it's like this crazy, beautiful thing. Like it's actually home to the world's largest urban bat colony. And I'd been hearing people talk about it. I was like, okay, well, you know, generally enjoy bats and and interesting animal things. So I went... um, and just like didn't really know what to expect, but knew it was going to be cool. But it was just such a reverential and like magical experience. Like it's, you know, so it's about sunset when the bats start coming out and they send scout bats out first. So it's just like a few individual bats at first. And then, you know, when I guess they signal to each other that it's safe, they all start coming out in droves. And this goes on for like hours until the sun sets. And it was just such a beautiful and magical experience. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to write about it. Um, and at the time, I was taking a class with um, our dear friend, Marie Helene Bertino at the New School, and she had us write for the this class assignment, a story that involved, you know, it could be anything, but it had to sort of involve a couple different parameters that we were studying in the class, which, were, which was on magic and time. So using different tenses, um, using different leaps forward or backwards in time, we could do, we could do whatever we wanted. And so... I decided to write a short story about these bats and about the person that I imagined was observing them. And I started thinking about what these bats meant to her, why they were, you know, so important. And I wrote, I ended up writing a short story about a young woman who's recently lost her father, who um, was a scientist who studied the bats and about their difficult relationship, as well as like kind of the legacy of, um, what he's left for her in terms of this scientific curiosity and an interest in the natural world and an interest in these bats in particular. And it was the first time I'd ever written about, you know, anything that wasn't just like, uh, like straight autobiographical fiction, which is like mostly what I was doing at the time. Um, and I found it such an interesting and rich avenue for thinking about things that I'm always interested in thinking about as a writer, but in a very different lens, like, I feel like I'm always writing about um, the experience of being a daughter, um, the experience of being Korean American, Asian American, the daughter of immigrants. And it's just an, it's not to say that all of my work is about that, but in some ways, a lot of my work is about that. (laughs) And writing about the bats, I think, just gave me access to a different lens of feeling because. I was writing about this character that doesn't quite yet know how she's feeling about the loss of her father. And it gave me a whole new vocabulary to think about um, approaching familial and close relationships and emotional coming of age. And I think a lot of those novel, uh, a lot lot of those themes continue to follow me into the writing of Sea Change as well, which has um, similar preoccupations about family, uh, father-daughter relationships, and, you know, the natural world and animals and what... um, they say about us when we think about them. Wait, tell me about that again, about the animals, about what they say about us when we think about them. What? Yeah. Tell me, I, say that again. 
Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think I'm always interested in thinking about the natural world and our relationship to animals and sort of what that says about us as you know the human animal, I guess, because it's so easy to think of ourselves as being outside of nature in some way um, or not being embodied in the way that we imagine animals or plants or other elements of the natural world to be, but we are. And yeah, I find that really grounding to think about as a writer. Oh, that's so interesting. You're absolutely right. There is a way that we are, and I feel like we are sort of trained to be we are the observers of all other life, but not actually participants in it in some weird way. Mm-hmm. Or if we are, mm-hmm. or if we are, it's on, it's only on a level amongst ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you do this, you write this story about this girl and you said it opened up a new avenue for you and it was different from the autobiographical fiction. How? Yeah, I think it was because it allowed me to think about, um, it allowed me to sit, be like situate myself inside the character in a different way. <clears throat> and also from a, like, I guess a more kind of craft perspective, I was thinking a lot about like, you know, when I was in that class with Marie, she was asking me to think about like, okay, like how can you incorporate more of these bats in this story? Not just, not just uh, describing them and observing them. Um, but how can you sort of incorporate what this character knows about these creatures into the emotional texture of her relationship with her father or with her relationship with herself? So I learned things about how um, bats, like in that colony, it's actually only mothers and babies that live in that colony. And so the father slash bachelor bats like live elsewhere in the city. And so I thought that was really fascinating in terms of like- Wait, really? Could, yeah, yeah. And it's so funny. They say that the male bats live on, I forget the name of the street, but it's like a street that's closer to like downtown and like the UT campus. So people call it like, <laughs> like you know, the bachelor pad area basically for male bats. <laughs> that's so funny. It's so oh strange. God. Yeah, it's really funny. Um, so yeah, it just made me think about like family structures and what my own character's family structure would have looked like. Like why, um, why is it that like you know like what 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 about this would have like struck her as a young child living with a parent who was you know sometimes irascible and sometimes emotionally like not really present because that's like a big element of 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 that particular story. Um, yeah. When you did that, so for me, part of creating a fictional character is there's this sort of, there's this funny inside and out, outsideness to it, meaning there's often emotions that I can have around one person that then f- surround another character. And it's usually somebody that's nothing like um, the, the person in my life, but I allow those emotions to flow differently. Um, oh. And they're, and they're allowed to like feel a different way. So, and I'm saying this because I, and tell me if I've got this wrong, but I do feel on my side of, of being Asian American, you really can't think about your feelings about your parents too much publicly. Like mm. that's not mm-hmm. an okay thing. Um, or if you do, you do it with your friends, but you don't sort of write about them. You wouldn't publicly talk about them. Um, whereas if I am approaching it through a fictional lens and it's not even, you know, it's like I could, I can change that. I can pull away from that. I can pull out different parts of it. I can also take on feelings that I don't necessarily have towards my parent, my parents, but I, I have a sort of sponginess around them and a way that I haven't looked into them that through the lens of a fictional character, I can do that. Did you find that to be true or not? Or that wasn't really what your trajectory was? 
Oh, no, that's absolutely that was absolutely true for me. Um, and I think one of the reasons I was really drawn to fiction in the first place, because it offers you that kind of flexibility and that sort of um, sponginess, as you said, to imagine, um, you know, characters that might have emotional roots and people that, you know, but because it's fiction, you have a little bit more permission and more space, or at least I felt I did in terms of accessing, you know, how this person felt about her mother versus how like I actually feel about my mother. Um, and yeah, totally agree. I think as um, Asian American people, as children of immigrants, it can be so hard to even admit to yourself, like the mm-hmm. truths of like your, you know, complicated relationships with your parents. Like I think a lot of people have complicated relationships with our parents, but for immigrant families, it's it's so layered um, because the bonds are so close in some ways because of like what you have been made to endure from an early age together. Um, and also your understanding mm. of what your parents were made to endure, like before you even came onto the scene, um, mm-hmm. that it be- it feels like a betrayal to acknowledge anything but the typical narrative of like, oh, they sacrificed so much for me. I'm so lucky to be here, et cetera. Um, and yeah, it's it's taken me a long time just as a person and as a writer to even start thinking about that um, that relationship that I have with my parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you, can I, how do your parents feel about you being a writer? They are very proud. They don't quite understand it, but <laughs> they're, they've always <laughs> been really supportive actually of me, you know, not following a sort of traditionally stable kind of career. Um, and yeah, they actually, yeah, to their credit, they never pressured me to like, you know, go become a lawyer or a doctor, an engineer or something. Like my dad's a professor. So I think that also helps somewhat. Um, but he's, he's also oh, a professor. Amazing, yeah. yeah. He's a professor of accounting. And so for a long oh. time, he, he like <laughs> held out so hopes. Yeah. <laughs> he held out <laughs> hopes that I would go get like an MBA. And then when I ended up, you know, making the decision to apply for MFA programs, my, he and my mom were both like, you know, again, confused, but they were kind of supportive. They were like, okay, well, at least she's going back to school to do something that, you know, we we understand there are degrees for. Um, but in terms of the writing, they've only read a couple of my of my stories and they actually haven't um, read the novel yet. So they're going to, you know, I guess, get to read it once it's out in the world in just a few weeks. Um, and so I, <laughs> I'm very curious to see what they'll say about it. I'm so curious about that. So you didn't give them a galley copy? No, they've seen it and they were they were very proud. We took pictures with it. It was like a whole moment, but they haven't they haven't read it. And some of it is some of it is language barrier. I mean, they they're both fluent in English, but my mom, who's the big reader in my family, she mostly reads in her native Korean. Um my dad is not really like a, a big fiction person. Although it's funny, he has read like shorter stories of mine that are online. And one of them also involves um, someone whose father is a professor. And he like, he got very serious with me later. And he was like, you know, I read your story. It was my first published pieces. So it was exciting. And he was like, I read your story and I think it's good. But, you know, people are going to get the wrong idea about me and our family. Because <laughs> he assumed that it was meant to be autobiographical in some way, uh-huh. which was really funny. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it'll be very funny to see what he makes of what he makes of the novel. <laughs> I mean, this is the hard thing to explain, right? Because it is this like funny alchemy. I, I also have this. I mean, trying to explain this to my immigrant parents was also kind of difficult in this way, because I think so much of our lives we we were a certain kind of invisible 
And then mm. for me to be doing something that was so public um, meant to them that they were, it was a weird thing. I felt like they felt seen with me, but also mm. a little bit frozen by the spotlight in some weird way. Does that make sense? It's like, because there's a certain kind of way that we all traveled invisibly through America to mm-hmm. suddenly call attention to us in a way. My parents were like, what? And then my mother was like, everyone's going to think I'm that dumb mother, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. It's like, I think we all experience it whenever there's any kind of, you know, moment around, you know, our communities and our people where it's like, yes, there is this moment of like, finally a little bit like of that recognition, but also it can be kind of quite immobilizing and paralyzing in terms of the the spotlight of that attention, because suddenly, you know, we don't have, we don't yet have the luxury of just saying, you know, this is just one of many, many stories, even though we know that to be true, it's still considered in the world that we live in to be like a manual for how to understand yes. <laughs> our people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, truly, actually, and that's to that point, like when I, sometimes when I read um, reviews of that first novel, people say, I, I learned so much about India and Indians here. And I just, I kind of want to like lay down and die. I'm like, oh really? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, it's like, that's their understanding. <laughs> right. Right. And you're also, you're writing into a space. So you have, um, so it's interesting about the bats. Do you feel like that character then informed we both know. So this book of yours is coming out in a couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Any change? Yep. Did it inform that character directly? You know, I think it did. And I it's it's funny because um as a writer, I do tend to think of a lot of my characters as existing in this unofficial extended universe in my head, but I don't know that I was very conscious of that character informing Roe in Sea Change until like maybe just now when you asked me about it. I think um, they're, they're very different characters, of course, but, um, you know, the character in that short story that I ended up writing, which is called um, The Love Song of the Mexican Free-Tailed Bat, she has a lot of access to, she, she's very angry as a character, which is, I think, something a lot of, a lot of us, you know, struggle with because of the fact that um, a lot, and by us, I mean, you know, women of color, um, daughters of immigrants, because it's, or that anger, it feels, still feels so, uh, impermissible. It feels so forbidden to express. So that story was all about, you know, me excavating my own relationship to that anger. Um, with Sea Change, I think, uh, it's sort of, a, it is a sort of kind of spiritual outgrowth of that initial excavation, um, And what I wanted to explore in this novel was um, not just, you know, sort of the anger or the sadness that can come from those experiences, but also the the sheer loneliness. Um, The character in Sea Change is someone who is a pretty solitary person. And some of it is by choice and some of it is by circumstance because um, she's someone who tells herself she has this story in her head that everyone leaves her and therefore she needs to be the first person to leave before she can get hurt again. Um, And at the start of the novel, we learn that her father has been missing for about 15 years and he was a marine biologist who sort of introduced her to the world of sea creatures and being curious about the world. And she works now at the aquarium that he used to work for, Um, but he went missing at sea years ago. And so she's never been able to really come to terms with that knowledge. And 
She's also, at the beginning of the novel, we learn she's just been broken up with by her ex, who is not only leaving her, he's leaving the planet to go on a privately funded mission to colonize Mars. And so I was really interested in thinking about, you know, what it would mean to be someone like this who feels as though everyone is always leaving her. And how would you, as a person with that experience, like, um, start leaving yourself in all these really small ways? One of the things that I loved about this character when I started reading her as you were sending her to me from the closet um, is <laughs> her drinking. Um, but one of the things that I felt a lot of freedom in reading, weirdly, was um, the that at the at that point that she was also drinking a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, through the story, I'm so glad that like you were the first person, you know, when you read those pages, those early pages of mine, I, you were the first person to really point that out that that was a significant thread for this character. Like until then, I had just you know been writing all these scenes of her getting drunk at home or at the bar and making unsafe choices for herself, and then you you were the one who were, who was kind of like she's got a bit of a drinking problem, doesn't she? And I was like, oh, and it was this moment where, you know, um, I'd been writing all these scenes of this character, really destroying herself in all these small ways, but I didn't understand that it was part of this larger pattern until really you pointed it out to me. Um, One of the things that I loved about that is I hadn't seen it before. You know, like you talk about the immigrant narrative and what we're allowed to say and the, the danger of any of our work being chosen as a single story and representative of all of us. And I hadn't seen a woman so at war with herself and specifically taking it out in in ways of like sort of drinking herself through her nights as a Korean woman. Do you know what I mean? As a woman mm-hmm. who has the same things that we're facing, who has the same pressures that we face to look a certain way and act a certain way in the world. And I hadn't seen that before. And I was wondering, when you wrote it, did it feel like you were stepping into new territory? Did it feel like you were writing something you also hadn't seen? Mm, Yeah. Uh, I think at the time, um, I didn't really feel that just because I was so, like, you know, waist deep in the world of it. And it just felt, like, Mm -hmm. logical to me that this was one of the few outlets she would allow herself. But, yeah, I mean... Now that we're discussing it, I do think it's it's not really a thing that we get to see a lot of. I mean, when I'm thinking of like popular um, artistic or media depictions of like women who are sort of on the verge, like young women on the verge, like it's usually always white yes. women who are melting down very publicly. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, for, and often for like comedic purposes, you know, like, oh, look at her. She's such a hot mess. Like that prototype yes. has existed with us for so long, but it's usually as like a, as a punchline. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, um, and it is sort of to dial back from it and find a sort of um, a redemption in patriarchy. You know what I mean? It's always, it's always like woman on the verge until she finds all of her meaning through um, a man and her stable career. And now, and now everybody loves her and she's getting married. Do you know what I mean? It's always this like (laughs) this certain trajectory that drives me crazy. And one of the things that I so appreciated in this was the the way in which I felt like you were letting her be as dark as she needed to be. And I don't feel like, I don't feel like when I, you know, as, as your mentor, when you're a professor, when I was starting to put fiction in the world, I don't feel like that was anywhere near a choice I felt I could make. 
And something about seeing that when I read it, I just have to tell you, like receiving it, it just felt like I was like, oh, there's more room for us with this book. There's more room for us with this. Like you were pushing into an area that I didn't even know we needed to push into, but it felt so rewarding to to receive it. You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's still like such a, I think it's, it goes along with what we were talking about in terms of like the things we're not allowed to express or be or say. And yeah. like, I know, I know people like Ro, like I've, I've been her a couple times in my life too, in terms of just like <laughs> being self-destructive and, you know, we all have. And I and mean, we've we all been Ro, right? Right, right. <laughs> I think that's what makes her such a like, you know, hopefully a, a relatable, but at the same time, still somewhat frustrating character. Um, and yet we still don't get to talk about that or be that way, you know, in quote unquote respectable company because we have to keep it together, you know, for so many different reasons. Did you did you watch the Oscars? I watched clips of it because um, I was like I I, my, I was like my heart is not strong enough to take it if like certain things don't win this year. <laughs> so I watched clips of it after the fact. Wait, tell me, tell me, tell me what you were worried about. Oh, I was just so worried about the everything everywhere all at once crew. Just because I mean I loved that movie and I was like I cannot bear it if like Michelle Yeoh does not win Best Actress. Um, mm-hmm, and now that mm-hmm. now that we know that she did because she absolutely deserved it. Um, now I feel like I can safely watch like all the footage, but I going into it, I was just kind of like, I can't, my heart is too fragile to take it. If like, you know, they don't take home best picture. And if Michelle at least does not get to take home best actress. So interesting that you say that, because I think there is a level of, um, anxiousness we all come to with the word shows because we're, we are shut out of them so often, Mm -hmm. right? There is a sort of way um, in which I feel like we've gotten our best and our brightest up to up to bat so many times and then watched like the green book run away with shit. <laughs> Sorry. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> no, like, it's tr- yeah. It's like PTSD from like all these other terrible awards moments we've seen. PTSD from America. Um, yeah. But there is this amazing moment and I wondered if you saw it um, or maybe watched it in the clip where um, when everything everywhere and all at once one um one of the directors was saying, um, this is for my son, and I just want you to know you don't have to win an Oscar. Like, this is an exceptional <laughs> moment. Did you did you mm-hmm. hear that part? Yeah, I did watch that moment. It's, yeah, <laughs> so good. Okay. Can I tell you, I started crying as hard at that moment as I did just in the movie with the mother-daughter dynamics, which I felt, I felt like I had never seen, I had never seen mother-daughter dynamics that explained my relationship with my mother nearly as well as I saw on the screen in that movie. Mm, mm-hmm. Like yeah. the intensity of the love and also the idea that that person will never understand you, will <sighs> never know you in some right. ways, doesn't even want to, but mm. is always going to be right there. Um, yeah. And that speech, when he said that, I don't know, did you, like, I just had such feelings in that moment about what it meant for a, for a man to say that out loud, kind of for all the reasons that we're talking about, because of the parents and because of choosing a weird, you know, choosing a an art to go down, choosing an artistic path to go down. Um, did you did you see that or do I like was this me? Was this me alone with my parent problems? No, that moment was so emotional for me too when I when I watched it slash read about it after the fact because it's 
like when he said that, it felt like um, a kind of like unburdening of sorts because for so long, so many of us have labored under the understanding that like we have to exceed what our parents have accomplished in some way in order to make it all quote unquote worth it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, no pressure. Like, it, and when he said that to his son, I just thought that was such a beautiful um, and in many ways unprecedented expression, like public expression of that kind of love that says, actually, you're you're enough. Like, you don't have to do, you know, above and beyond of what I've accomplished in order to, in order to matter, in order to have quote unquote made it already. I I just thought that was such a beautiful moment. You know what? You're right. I don't think I, I don't think I understood until you just said it, that that is, that is always the bargain, right? The bargain is that you exceed. Mm -hmm. It's not that you do well. It's that you have to exceed whatever your parents did. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was something I I wanted to explore a little bit in the book, too. You know, the question of like, you know, that inheritance that you receive and the that sort of unspoken contract that we're all part kind of participating in and how Mm. even sometimes without even realizing it and how um, what a relief it can be to lay that burden down. Mm, Wait, tell me about that. Yeah, I, um, it's a moment in the book when I think Ro is reflecting on her ex-boyfriend's choice to go into space to, like, be part of this kind of unprecedented mission to colonize Mars. Um, and she's thinking to herself, like, that she can't understand this choice. Um, she's so resentful of the fact that he's leaving her behind to go do this thing. But then she thinks to herself, like, maybe it's an extension of his own kind of child of immigrants ambition where the only thing that he could do to sort of like go above and beyond what his parents have accomplished for him. Cause he's also a Korean American and the son of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the idea is that the only thing he could accomplish that's more than that is to leave the planet itself, you know, and go build a home elsewhere. Did you, when you were writing, did you have an idea of who you were writing the book for? Yeah, I think the, the it was sort of um, a couple different things. One of the, one of the people that I definitely had in the back of my mind in writing was sort of like my younger self, um, mm. the self that would have wanted to see or read this type of story in the world yeah. about the kind of world that she grew up in. Um, and another thing that I was thinking about a lot, and I think I included this in the acknowledgments of my book, was I was complaining to one of my my friends about, you know, the sort of endless process of drafting and revising and how tiresome it is, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of like jokingly said to her, like, you know, why should I even continue? Like, what's the, you know, it was one of those very, very dramatic, like self-indulgent moments of like, why me? Um, And, or why should I keep going? And my friend just very lovingly and simply said, because I want to read it, because I want to read your book. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a, like, it was like the most beautiful and like simple thing anyone could have said to me in that moment. And I I kept that in the back of my mind the whole time where I was like, yeah, it's because I have people in my life who love me and are, and they want to read it. And, and I also was thinking, I also want to read it because (laughs) I didn't know, you know, how it was going to end at various points throughout the drafting process. And so. Is that true? You didn't know. I didn't quite know. I knew, I knew sort of like a general, I had like general broad strokes in mind for where the character would be emotionally by the end of the novel, but I didn't know how she would get there and so, until I'd written, you know, a lot of the sort of connective scenes that would get her to that place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I'm always so curious about that because I feel like as people who make things, I feel like there are two very different schools of people. And one is the person that's like, yeah, I've got it locked down. I know exactly where I'm headed. And, um, and then, and then as they head down that path, nobody just gets there, right. As they head down that path, like different things come up. And then there are the people that are like, not quite sure where this is landing, but I think it's, I think we're headed West. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we're headed in that direction. It sounds like you're a little more of the West heading person. Yeah. Yeah. And I, even if I, even if I, at the start of something know, like, you know, okay, I'm pretty sure it's going to end with this line that happens to me sometimes. Um, I have to end up writing against it in whatever way that is. Like I outline, I'm an outliner, but I have to, I have to disrespect the outline a lot throughout the process of writing it because otherwise uh-huh. I'm, I'm not going to stay as interested in it. I, I like to surprise myself, I guess. So, um, you know, at the start of writing Sea Change, I think I shared with you my, my own outline and plans for the novel and yes. found myself deviating from it quite a bit. Um, and at first I was like, oh, why am I doing this? And then I realized that this is just my process where I, I have to have a plan, but then I also have to not listen to the plan a lot of times to keep myself interested in the project. Well, right. And I remember us um, talking about that a little bit because we talked about the idea of keeping something alive, right? Mm -hmm. By the nature of it being alive, then it has to change. Like there's the idea that you have about it, but then as it grows, it becomes its own, I mean, to use your, it becomes its own animal, right? And then you have to kind of follow the animal where it goes. Right, right. It's like, I'm thinking now of like, in terms of like visual metaphors, like, do you know, like that trope in fairy tales where like, um, you know, the prince or whoever the person is trying to win over, like they, the final test is to like, you have to hold on to your beloved as they transform into all these different kinds of creatures. I don't know if you're familiar with that, that trope. That's amazing. Go on. <laughs> and and so okay. what happens in, in the, in the story is that like the, the heroine or whoever has to hold on to the enchanted prince or whoever it is and they turn into all kinds of creatures like you know slit things creatures that are very slippery or very fast or very scary and like sort of difficult to hold on to but the idea is that you you have to stay steadfast and that's the only way you'll kind of quote unquote win your prince by the end of the novel and I feel like that's by the end of the story and I feel like novel writing feels a little bit like that to me where I'm like this is this thing keeps changing even though I know at its core, what it's going to be. And I just have to like hang on for the ride basically. Oh, Gina, I love that. That's such a great way to think of it. It also keeps you from strangling it. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're just <laughs> trying to hold on, it keeps you from like murdering it or, you know, running away from it or putting it away because you're like, you're too much. It's too different. It reminds me of, um, okay, go with me for a second, but it reminds me of my dad once. So my parents had an arranged marriage and my dad once was trying to explain to me what happens, like why, okay, this is a very immigrant thing, but he was like telling me about why American marriages don't work. Cause as far as he was concerned, all Americans got divorced, uh, which is probably <laughs> uh-huh. true in the eighties. But he was basically like, you know, Indians, we have arranged marriages. We don't know who we married. And so, you know, like with Americans, they always marry someone and they're like, this person changed and now they're no longer who I married and I don't want to be with them anymore. He's like, Indians, we have no idea who we married. So whatever they change into, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's really beautiful, actually. <laughs> I mean, it was a very sweet thing. This, I mean, I was also, you know, I was also like, yeah, a weird. But I did love that idea. And that sounds a little bit like what happens with your novel, right? Like mm-hmm. you're just, you are there to kind of watch it change and stay with it. I love that idea. Okay, if you 
had to go back to the person who was let's let's it's back we're back at 2020 okay we're back in september of 2020 mm-hmm. you are just figuring out that you've got these three chapters that you're turning in and you're going to do this thing mm-hmm. if you had to give her a piece of advice for going forward in that moment, what would you tell her? Um, I think I would tell her to stop freaking out so much, um, which is always easier said than done, but truly like stop freaking yourself out so much. (laughs) I was just so scared the whole time. I don't know why. Um, and also to, can we stop for uh, a second? Wait, I just want to actually ask you about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. When you say you were scared, what did that look like? What do you mean? I felt it's so funny because looking back, I'm like, all I had was time, right? To like time to sit around and work on this. I mean, not that it was the only thing I was doing, but you know, I had a lot more sort of like writing time that I knew what to do with in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was also so, I felt like I was running out of time um, where I think you got several panicked emails from me that semester being like, Mira, I haven't finished the chapter that I said I would. And you know, I promise I'll get this other thing to you. And I, and, you know, you very warmly and wisely were like, please stop, you know, berating yourself for not meeting your own self-imposed deadlines. Like the writing will get done. And I, I just felt that, that sort of this sort of urgency throughout that whole time of like, I have to finish this by this, you know, again, arbitrary, mostly self-imposed deadline. Um, because I think Mm -hmm. I thought Mm -hmm. that, I don't know, something would vanish um, either from, from me or the project, if I didn't like pin it down soon enough. Um, that's so interesting. Yeah. I know that yeah. feeling well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe it was because of the, the structure of being in an MFA program and being conscious that that time would come to an end soon. Um, and yeah, so I think some of it was also that sort of immigrant striving mentality of like, well, we must take this, this, this difficult time and, and monetize it or, or, or make an opportunity uh-huh. of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you know what? I have to say, like, also, I just, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years on and I feel like I, when I'm in the middle of a project, I also have that urgency. And specifically the thing that you just said about, if I don't get it down, it could disappear. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like sometimes when you're trying to hold a whole world in your head, the urgency is a little bit around that. Like, you're trying to hold a whole world in your head, and and you don't want to put it down. You don't want it to disappear. I mean, as much as I'm like, I and I also, I, I know that I'm the person that wrote you the emails that were like, Gina, calm. It's like, calm down. <laughs> it's going to be okay. You got this. I also feel like just on the on the artistic side— it makes a lot of sense to me that there would be, I feel like the sense of urgency comes sometimes with the, with the project itself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, but you tell, you can tell that girl not to panic, which I appreciate. I I also told her not to panic. And what else would you tell her? (laughs) Um, I would also tell her just to like, you know, take care of herself too, because it sounds, it sounds Mm. so basic, but it's, it's so true. Like I've at this point, in the process of this book, like the creation story of this book, I've, I've like burnt myself out so many times, you know, not just because of the novel, but because of like, you know, all the competing demands of being a person in the world and like, um, of having a full-time job to be accountable to, and also working on other writing projects. Like there have been so many times in the last like two to three years where I've like 
hit that sort of productive productivity rock bottom and thought to myself, oh my gosh, it's gone. I don't have any more creative juice or willpower or anything left. Like wherever it was that I was getting inspiration, it's the, the well has dried up and I don't know what to do. And every single time the answer has just been to rest. And, but every single time I'm still so panicked that, you know, this is the end of the road. And, um, I think I've had to really tell myself to like, take that time whenever I can. Um, and really listen to myself too, in those moments, because, you know, it's like that thing of like, if you don't rest your body and your brain, eventually they will make you. And when that happens, you know, it can be really challenging. And so it's better for you to like, choose to take that break than be forced to, you know, by, by life circumstances. And I'm someone who it's so easy for me to not listen to my body and to just like keep on going with whatever it is I think I have to get done um, until I'm at the end of my rope. And I'm like, why am I so tired? And I'm crying at everything and everything is so hard. And the answer is usually that I've, I've burnt myself out in some way. Um, so like, and with writing, um, I want this to be a long career for me. And in order to, to do that, I really have to, had to learn how to like make friends with not just my mind and my creativity, but also with my body and to think about what it means to be in this container of a body and how to ensure that it gets through the long haul, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also, it's such a funny thing about the writing life because I feel like um, I think I am always so delighted that I that I get to write for a living that I forget that it is work and it is right? It is always work. The thing that you're talking about is very real. Working as many, doing as many assignments as you do and writing the kind of stuff that you do and then also writing for work, it is all work. So the idea that like you can actually put it all down. And as you said, like I think it's such a good point that it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be going to bed early. It can be taking a bath. It can be going out with a friend on a walk, mm-hmm. right? It can be like lying with your cat. That's usually what it is for me. yeah and like writing it it's you're so right that it's like we are often taught not to think about it at work or we or we don't ourselves think about it as work but it is I mean when at its best I think when it's like you're in you're in that deep flow state that everyone craves and loves like it feels like play because it is you know it's like a very Mm -hmm. like um solo uh like sort of personal feeling of play, but play is also work, you know, like that's why it's so important for, for children when they're growing to like have certain mandated hours of play. And like, I think about that a lot too, what I'm thinking about, like, you know, uh, why it is like it can feel so taxing. Um, even when what you're doing is sitting down, making up stories about yours, about people that no one knows, you know, <laughs> but it's still, it's still, it's both work and play. Threshold is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshibud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.